0: man thank you Karen Do you ever know something to be true but it just doesn't really sink in until you actually experience it It's kind of what we're going to look at this evening But several years ago we were living up in the upper peninsula of Michigan and the house we were at staying with Stacy's parents was heated with a wood stove If any of you have ever had The privilege of that type of heating. You know the last person up has to stoke it full of wood so that the fire doesn't die out during the night and everything gets really cold. And me being the smart individual that I am, you know, with the scouts, I know that fire is hot. I know that fire inside of a metal container will heat the edges of that metal container. But wouldn't you know the number of times that as you're putting the wood in and you know the edge is hot and your arm just brushes up against it, you would then learn, you know what, what I knew is now something I'm experiencing, so I understand it a little bit better. We're going to see that tonight in Acts chapter 10. Before we get into the text just by way of review and to get us caught up in Acts chapter 10. We've been going through this series looking at different sermons in the book of Acts and seeing how those who are preaching the sermons are using the opportunities that they have to share the gospel so that as we go out and interact with individuals, we can hopefully glean some of those truths And apply them ourselves. Peter's first two sermons we looked at in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3 were really not intended to be a sermon, but a simple answer to a question. The first question at Pentecost was How can we hear these Galileans speaking in our native tongue? Peter's answer was It is through the prophesied gift of the Spirit poured out upon all flesh. And he goes to Joel chapter 2. He then goes and demonstrates from the Old Testament how the Spirit, Holy Spirit, is now being poured out by the Son of David, this Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom had been rejected and crucified by the Sanhedrin, by the leadership of Israel, and yet exalted by God. And as a result of that, Peter, knowing his audience, letting his audience know what they needed to know about salvation. We see 3,000 individuals being added to the church. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and James, Peter and John, Peter and one of them, I don't have it right in front of me, but at least we know Peter is headed to the temple and there at the beautiful gate there's a lame man. And Peter, through the name of Jesus Christ and faith in Christ, heals this lame man bringing up the second question, how was this individual healed? Peter's answer that he then takes about six hours to answer was, this man was healed by faith in the name of Jesus, the one who you rejected and crucified, the one who offers restoration, hope, and forgiveness to those who call out to him. And we see the response to this, the scribes and the Pharisees, rejected what Peter was saying. In fact, they had them thrown into prison. But we see on the positive side, 5,000 were added to the church. We looked two weeks ago in Acts chapter 7 at Stephen, and really his sermon in Acts chapter 7 is more of a defense against the false accusations leveled against him, that he had blasphemed against Moses, that he had blasphemed against the temple. And you read through that sermon that Peter is giving, or it's not Peter, Stephen is giving, and he demonstrates quite clearly that throughout Israel's history, they have a pattern of rejecting the one that God had sent to deliver them. Starting with the patriarchs rejecting Joseph, and then Moses being rejected several times in the wilderness. And Stephen asks, you know, which of the prophets didn't your fathers kill? And now Jesus has been rejected. He attests that by confining God to the temple and saying that God is the God of the Jews only, and he has to stay in the temple, the Jewish leaderships really were the only ones who were blaspheming God and not Stephen. We don't see anybody coming to know Christ as their Savior as a result of that message. We do see Stephen being stoned, however. That then leads to persecution, which forces the church to spread from the city of Jerusalem throughout Judea. In Acts chapter 8, we're introduced to Philip, who, like Stephen, was a deacon. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't an apostle. He was a deacon who was full of the Holy Ghost and willing to give the gospel. We see him in the Bible. Luke only records for us that Stephen... Or excuse me, Philip preached Christ. That's it. He preached Christ, and those in Samaria were coming to know Jesus as their Savior. Peter and John are sent from the church at Jerusalem to verify. You know, are these Samaritans really becoming saved? And yes, they were because the Holy Ghost had descended on them, and they were demonstrating that. We then see Philip being carried in the Spirit to the Ethiopian eunuch. And with the Ethiopian eunuch, we read that Philip preached Jesus unto him. And as we see the gospel being spread, we get to Acts chapter 9 and chapter 10, as Peter is going to start seeing the gospel going to the Gentiles, it should not have come as a surprise to him. Because he would have remembered the words of Christ in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And Luke is recording in the book of Acts how the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. And when we get to Acts chapter 10, we start seeing it going to the ends of the earth with now Gentiles coming to know Christ as the Savior. Acts chapter 9, there's a lot of good stuff in there, but no sermons, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time there. But Acts chapter 9 recounts the conversion of Saul. We see Peter also raising Tabitha, or Dorcas, from the dead in Joppa. And we leave off Acts chapter 9, and Peter is staying in the house of one Simon the Tanner. Which brings us to Acts chapter 10, where we are introduced to Cornelius. Luke describes Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 as a devout individual. It was recognizable that Cornelius was religious. And this is before even Peter comes to him. He is a religious man, but his religion does nothing for him. His religion cannot save him. He needs the gospel, and that's what we're going to see him getting today. Luke records him as one who feared God. He was a worshiper of Yahweh. And this term, God-fearer, is a term that would often be used to describe Gentiles who were attracted to the Jewish faith, who worshipped Israel's God, who would often attend synagogue and may even obey parts of the law, But they were not completely proselytes, in that they had not been circumcised and do not follow all the stipulations of the law. Cornelius is a God-fearer. He's a devout man. Luke also records that his house also feared God, indicating that his faith was not just for himself, but his family also. His wife, children, servants, recognizing his character, He was able to influence them. We read that he was one who gave much alms to the people. Luke doesn't record if he's giving many alms to the Jews or if he's just giving alms to those under his command. But either way, Cornelius is one who has a generous spirit. One afternoon while Cornelius is praying at 3 o'clock, he's visited by an angel of God who informs him to send messengers to the town of Joppa to go to the house of Simon the Tanner and send for Peter. And Peter will tell you what you need to do. Cornelius doesn't really understand who this messenger is. We see him later as he recounts this story to Peter, just as a guy in bright clothes showed up. Not necessarily recognizing this was an angel, but this is something that's a little odd. But Cornelius demonstrates obedience to this individual. Immediately, he sends two of his servants and one soldier to accompany them to Joppa. While all of that's going on, Peter is at the house of Simon the Tanner. So the next day, at noontime, Peter's going to the roof to pray, and while he's there, you know, he's starting to get hungry because it's lunchtime, and they're fixing the food for him downstairs. And we may be familiar with the story. Peter goes into a trance. He sees this vision of this sheet coming down from heaven with all sorts of wonderful organisms on it. The problem was they were all unclean beasts. And Peter hears a voice saying, Peter, arise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, no, these are unclean animals. I'm not going to do it. And the sheep goes back up, it comes down a second time, and then a third time. Now, I'm really glad for this story, because I think that gives us permission to have bacon and ribs. Because those would have been unclean. But three times Peter sees this, and while he's receiving this vision, the three messengers from Cornelius show up at Simon's house. And the Spirit tells Peter, there are three men downstairs looking for you they're Gentiles, but go with them because I sent them to you. And Peter does, he goes with them. And When he arrives at Cornelius' house, he reminds Cornelius that as a Jew, it is unlawful for me to come into your house and to share a meal with you. So what I'm doing is something that A Jew would not normally do and Cornelius the head of a Italian band in Judea would have understood this and so he recognizes that Peter is doing something different and Peter says that it's because God specifically instructed him and during after this Cornelius reveals his vision to Peter emphasizing his immediate obedience to the command of the angel to call for Peter which leads us then to our text this evening, verses 34 of Acts chapter 10 and following. Luke records, then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word, I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people, and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Father, as we look into your word this evening and we examine this text, pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to areas where we and give the gospel more freely to those that we come in contact with. Lord, that if there is one listening who has never accepted you as Savior, today would be that day. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend in your word, and we just ask that you would give us open minds and open hearts. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Peter opens this sermon sermonette with an introductory comment about god's nonpartiality peter opens his mouth and said i recognize now that god does not respect persons this is not a new truth for peter this is a truth that is found throughout the old testament deuteronomy chapter 10 Moses records, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. God does not regard persons. God doesn't take bribes. There's nothing that an individual can do to earn or to merit God's favor. God loveth the stranger, and that would be a term for those who were not a member of Israel, the Gentiles of whom Cornelius, and I dare say most of us, would fall into that category. In Job chapter 34, Job asks the question, Is it fit to say to a king, Thou art wicked? And to princes, ye are ungodly. How much less to him, talking about God, that accepteth not the persons of princes, nor regardeth the rich more than the poor, for they are all the works of his hands. Doesn't matter your status in life, it doesn't matter your age, it doesn't matter the wealth that you have, the positions that you may hold. All of mankind is made, as we saw even this morning, in the image of God. We're all made by him. We see this truth throughout the New Testament. In Romans chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, For there is no respect of persons with God. In chapter 3, verses 29 and 30, Paul asks the question, Is he the God of Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. God's impartiality is the link between the gospel that Peter is about to proclaim and the instructions that he had received in verse 28 that he should not call any man common or unclean. Sometimes we may know a truth without really knowing that truth. And this reality sinking into Peter is taking on a new dimension. You know, for Peter, being a Jew, God is the God of the Jews. And he is their covenant God, and he wants to redeem Israel, and that is true. And oftentimes, Israel would then take that and say, God is our God only. There's no way that God's going to save that Gentile over there. I think sometimes, as believers, we may tend to have that mindset, also. You know, if we think about our neighbors, our family members who live complete ungodly, immoral lives, does the thought ever cross our mind, oh, God can't save them. They're too ungodly. They're too wicked. And yet, Peter is about to learn Firsthand and we can learn from Peter that that person who's too ungodly, that Gentile Cornelius who would be too ungodly for the God of Israel to save, is exactly who God came to save. It's exactly who he sent his son to save. Peter says, God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted. By him. Accepted means to be marked by a favorable manifestation of divine pleasure. Note, Peter is not proclaiming that all people groups are acceptable to God regardless of religious beliefs and practices, but rather God's acceptance is qualified with the adjectives those who fear God, those who work righteousness. And what Luke records of Cornelius, he was a God-fearer. He was one who gave alms. He fits both of those qualifiers. And if we look in the Old Testament, we notice that fearing God and doing what is right really forms the essence of the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses asks the question, And now Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? No, does he want you to keep all Ten Commandments or the entirety of the law? No, Moses says he requires you to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Peter's introduction is okay. I know in my head that God is not a respecter of persons. But this experience that I'm going through, hearing Cornelius' testimony that God sent an angel to Cornelius to send for Peter, that truth is coming deep into Peter, that yes, God is not just the God of Jews only, but he's the God of even the Gentiles. And the central aspect of Peter's giving of the gospel consists of three parts. God's fulfillment of his promise of salvation for all people through Jesus. Jesus's ministry of proclamation and healing. And Jesus's death and resurrection. So as Peter gives the gospel, he starts by relating to Cornelius that God has fulfilled his promise of salvation For all people through Jesus. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. First, we see that God has fulfilled his promise of salvation to the people of Israel through Christ. Christ himself preaching with his preaching of peace, both in word, so we see in Luke chapter 4. As Jesus is reading from the scroll in the synagogue, he reads the spirit of the Lord, and then he changes the text. Instead of saying, will come upon the servant, he says, "Is upon me. Why? Because he, God, hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Whereas Mark records in Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15, after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. While he was on this earth and while he was in his three years of public ministry, Christ was preaching a gospel of repentance. Preaching the kingdom is at hand. Why was the kingdom at hand? Because the king of that kingdom was on the earth. But we see Israel rejecting the kingdom because they rejected the king. When they rejected Christ, they didn't stop God's plan. God's kingdom is still coming to this earth. But they rejected the king Christ not only preached the gospel in his words, but he also preached the gospel of peace by giving of himself, by paying the price of sin through his sacrificial death, establishing peace between man and God. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, therefore being justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we need peace with God? Because before we're saved, we are at enmity with him. We can do nothing of ourselves to reconcile ourselves to God. Cornelius, even though he was a devout man, even though he was a religious man, even though he was generous, even though he feared God, none of those ultimately mattered. Religion does not save, Christ saves. We are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 10 and 11 of Romans 5, Paul continues For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. And as Peter is giving the gospel to Cornelius and his household, Peter starts it by saying the promise of peace that God made towards Israel, he has fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Those Jews, at least the 8,000 that we read of in the book of Acts, were demonstrations of that But not only that, but also that same salvation that was offered to Israel is offered to all people. Jesus Christ preaching the peace of God, and it's in parentheses in our translations, but the little phrase, He is Lord of all. He is not just the God of the Jews. He is the Lord of all. Jesus is Lord not only of the Jewish people, but also, and this is where it comes home for Cornelius and his household, he's also the God of the Gentiles. Jesus Christ, the same peace that he preached to the Jews, is extended to all people. He then goes and dives into, secondly, Jesus' ministry of proclamation and healing. That word, he says, I say ye know. Cornelius, you know these things. You've lived in Judea long enough. You understand what I'm telling you to be true. Which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. John's baptism of Jesus marked the beginning of Christ's public ministry. It was at his baptism that Matthew and Mark both record for us the Spirit of God descended upon Christ like a dove. The words of God were audibly heard, "This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased." It was at John's baptism that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Ghost. Now this is not to say, as some false teachings are out there, that Jesus was a man, and the Christ came upon him at his baptism, and that's when he became God. He was always fully man and fully God, from when He was born forward. And Peter is going to highlight five aspects of Jesus' ministry as he gives the gospel to Cornelius. The first is that Jesus is God's anointed one. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, the one that God has chosen to redeem mankind. He says, you've heard how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was set apart and empowered by God. And in verse 38, Peter reemphasizes this with the phrase, God was with him. Jesus wasn't just on this earth doing what he wanted, doing things in his own power. Jesus was anointed, chosen by God. He secondly was endowed with the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Spirit in Jesus made the power of God a reality in Jesus' ministry. He was endowed with the Spirit. He was also the focus of God's power. Jesus' identity and role as the anointed Messiah is demonstrated in the manifestation of God's power in his life. And we read through the Gospels and we see the miracles that Christ does, demonstrating God's anointing, God's choosing of him, that he is the anointed Messiah. His ministry took him from place to place. Jesus wasn't just focused in Galilee or just focused in Nazareth, but instead he went throughout all of Judea, preaching the gospel to the entire Jewish people. His proclamations of peace was accompanied by demonstrations of his power. Peter says that Jesus went about doing good at first, Phrase means to render exceptional service. It's the same phrase that is used by Peter in Acts chapter 3 when he is confronted by, about healing the lame man and he asks the question, are we on trial for doing good? Jesus' miracles that he was doing, the healing of people, demonstrated his power, casting out of demons. But not only that, but the disciples were the witnesses of Jesus' ministry. Peter had been there from the beginning. Peter would have heard Christ's proclamation of the arrival of the kingdom. Peter would have seen the miracles of healing and the exorcisms which Christ performed. Peter would have heard all of Christ's answers to the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Peter was there with Christ's triumphant entry to Jerusalem. Peter had seen it all. He was a witness that what he is saying is true. But then Peter gets into Jesus' death and resurrection. If we remember back to Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, Peter goes into great length giving details of Christ's death and resurrection and accusing the Jews of their guilt in this death of Christ. Compared to that, Peter is very succinct with this aspect of the gospel. He says that they slew him and hanged him on a tree. That's it. But just that simple statement reminds us that Jesus had to die. Jesus died for our sins. Peter says those who were responsible for Christ's execution, the Jews killed him. The method of his execution is he was hanged on a tree. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, Moses records that if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. Now, Jesus, by being hanged on the tree, there's a direct correlation with the fact that when Jesus was on the cross, he took the curse for our sin on him. So he demonstrated by calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Peter doesn't stop with Jesus' death. He then goes on and says, the one who's responsible for his resurrection, God raised him up on the third day. Peter is going to spend more time recounting the witnesses of the risen Christ than actually on Christ's death and resurrection. Why is that? think part of it is when Peter in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3 is talking to the Jews, the Jewish mindset, except for the Sadducees, believed in the bodily resurrection of the dead. So Christ's resurrection, they would have, okay, we can understand that. But when you're in the Greek or even the Roman mindset, the bodily resurrection of the dead is something that's a little more bizarre, something that would have taken a little more convincing to Cornelius. And so Peter spends more time in it. He does this and he emphasizes four points in presenting evidence for the risen Christ. Okay, very simply, Christ died and he was resurrected, but let me show you reasons why he was resurrected. Peter knew his audience. He had developed a rapport and a relationship with Cornelius, and so he knows what aspects of the gospel Cornelius is going to need more. Here's how we know Christ is risen. Peter says the same God who raised him up caused him to be seen. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly. God not only raised him, but God had him seen But not only did the same God cause him to be seen, but secondly, Jesus was seen after the resurrection. When Peter and John got to the tomb, when Mary was at the tomb, it wasn't just an empty tomb and where's the body? If that was just an empty tomb and there's no body, what is our hope in? But Jesus was visibly seen, giving evidence to the fact that Somebody didn't just steal his body, but the fact that he had been raised. God showed him openly. But God didn't show him openly to all. Jesus was not seen by all, but thirdly, by those whom God had appointed. Not to all the people, Peter says, but unto witnesses chosen before of God. If you look at it, Jesus' post-resurrection appearances were only to believers. Believers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, Paul tells us he was seen of Cephas. Peter saw Christ resurrected. Then he was seen of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. Jesus didn't just wasn't just resurrected by God. God had him be seen and there were still people alive at that time who would proclaim that I saw the resurrected Lord. But not only that, Peter also points out an interesting concept. Jesus's encounters with these witnesses involved meals. Now, if that's not a good Baptist polity, I don't know what is. Let's gather together and have a meal. Jesus did it. Even to us, Peter says, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. We see Jesus sharing a meal with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, sharing a meal with the disciples in the upper room, after the disciples spent a fruitless night back fishing on the sea, and they came in, and Peter is sitting there, or Jesus is there on the shore, and he has some fish grilling up for them. You know, why is Peter pointing out the fact that there was food involved? Because spirits don't eat. The fact that Jesus was sharing a meal with them demonstrates that it's not just a spirit. Resurrection, but it is a bodily resurrection. And then Peter gives the offer of salvation. He gives a proclamation what was commanded to the eyewitnesses. He says, Jesus, He commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is He which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. The witnesses' activity, and by the way, as believers today, this is our responsibility. If we have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, we are witnesses. We should be doing this very thing. They proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. But they also proclaimed Jesus' role as judge. And if we're thinking about the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came, that he was born, that he suffered, that he died for us, the good news, why would Peter throw in this aspect that Jesus is also the judge of the quick, those who are alive, and the dead? Because if I'm a sinner, And Jesus is going to be my judge, that's not good news. That's terrible news. But we see this throughout the scriptures also. In Acts 17, Paul refers to the times of this ignorance God winked at. But now God commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in which he, Jesus, will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. God will judge the world by Jesus Christ, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Jesus' role as judge may not appear to fit with the good news of the gospel, but if we think about it, going back to verse 36, because Jesus is the Lord of all, He is also the judge of all. Because he is the judge of all, he will judge all according to the same standards because verse 34, Peter says, God is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter how good we may be. It doesn't matter how moral we may be, how religious we may be. God's standard, the standard by which Christ will judge all men, is the same. Here's why it fits into the good news, because the forgiveness of sins, the decisive factor for the divine verdict on that day of judgment, is found only through Jesus Christ. Yes, he's going to be the judge, but what if the judge is the person who's already forgiven you? There's where we have the good news. Oftentimes, as we give the gospel today, we don't want to offend somebody by telling them the truth that they are a sinner and their sin will cause them to be judged because we don't want to hurt or offend them but that's part of the good news because that same judge is the same one who will forgive and that's what peter emphasizes in the very next verse when he tells us the possibility of forgiveness of sins is there through faith in jesus christ To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. At the end of his explanation of the message of Jesus and its significance, Peter concludes with this wonderful promise, the Lord will grant forgiveness to any who believes in him. As one commentator said, if the judge himself is involved in forgiving sins the accused will certainly go free since the sins that have been committed will not affect the outcome of the trial. And while this forgiveness is offered to all, reception of the forgiveness is contingent upon belief in Jesus as Lord and as judge. What are the results of this gospel message that Peter is giving? Well, just earlier in the chapter, we see Cornelius not hesitate in obeying the angel of the Lord to send for Peter. Cornelius is not, does not hesitate in believing in Jesus as the Lord and judge. In fact, as Peter is speaking, Luke records the Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius and his household. You know, Cornelius didn't wait for a proper invitation to pray a prayer. As Cornelius is listening to Peter explain the gospel, Cornelius is thinking in his head, that's right. And he puts his faith, his belief in Jesus, the Lord and judge. The Spirit's coming upon him and his household is demonstrated by these Gentiles, these outsiders speaking in tongues. And we say, what's what's the point of that? Why does Luke record that? Because it demonstrates that the Spirit on them speaking in tongues, that's the same Spirit that we see in Acts chapter 2 when the disciples go out and they are speaking in tongues. And so to Peter and those who were with him, this is a clear demonstration of what Peter says in verse 34, God is no respecter of persons. Even though this Gentile is not a part of God's chosen people Israel, God's salvation through Christ is effective for him because he puts his belief in Jesus. Peter recognizes that God's glorious salvation has now come to the Gentiles. And they have received the Holy Spirit just as the Jews had, just as the Samaritans had. So what does he do? He has he calls for water. He says, "Okay, it's clear they're believers. Let's baptize them. The outward demonstration of obedience to Christ. And even though, again, as we said at the beginning, this should not have come as a surprise because Christ commanded it to happen. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Not everyone was pleased with the results. In fact, when we get to the next chapter, Acts chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, when he came back, they that were of the circumcision, those who were Jew, there were some who were Jews, contended with him. They argued with him. They attacked him. Peter, you went into men who were uncircumcised and you ate with them. Peter, how dare you cross that line between Jew and Gentile. And Peter explains to them that the same way that God had saved them through faith in Christ, through belief in Christ, God's doing it to the Gentiles as well. So what do we take away this evening? First and foremost, if you have not believed in Jesus, the Lord and judge of all for the forgiveness of sins, why not now? You don't need to wait for a special invitation. Believers, are we limiting the saving power of God? Are there people that we just know will never get saved, so why bother giving the gospel to them? Paul asks in the book of Romans, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher, and how shall they preach except they be sent? If you're a believer this evening, Christ's last great commission to us is to go and to tell all nations, to make disciples. That's our sending. So how is that unsaved person who lives down the block from us, who lives a lifestyle that we would completely say is immoral, going to hear the gospel that could save their soul, if we don't give it to them? Are we limiting God's power? God's saving grace is sufficient for all. Whosoever believes in Christ, in Jesus, will receive the remission of sin. Are we sharing that good news? We see that Peter doesn't give the gospel to Cornelius the same way that he did to the Jews in Acts 2 and 3. He doesn't give the gospel the same way that Stephen did in Acts chapter 7. Instead, Peter recognizes his audience. And he doesn't change the gospel, but he changes what he knows that individual will need to be convinced. Are we making connections with people, intentionally reaching out to them, so that we can understand them better to be able to share the gospel with them. Father, we thank you that you are not just the God of Jews only, but whosoever believeth in Jesus will have the remission of sins. That those of every nation who fear you can be saved. Father, I pray that if there is one this evening who has never put their belief in you and your son, his death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, that today would be that day. And Father, I pray that you'd be with those of us who are saved. Lord, perhaps there's one whom we may have written off and decided to not share the gospel with them because they're never going to listen anyway. Father, may we take the opportunities that you provide to share the gospel with them so that they have the opportunity to believe in your son. Father, help us to be making connections with people so that we can share the gospel with them. We ask these things in the name of the one who gives forgiveness for sins, Jesus Christ, amen.